darkness. It's exciting, isn't it? That's why we're all here. We enjoy a little bit of darkness while we're in a safe place. Having darker interests doesn't make a monster. No. It's when the danger creeps into that safe space that a monster truly shows their fangs. On June 2nd, 2000, authorities arrested John Edward Robinson Sr. Law enforcement arrived at the Robinson family's 16-acre property and simply knocked on the door of their mobile home. Robinson answered and stood stunned as his rights were read and he was placed in handcuffs. At first, Robinson's surprise was palpable. He went pale and speechless. His eyes glazed over, and he did what he was told. But police couldn't help notice, as they ducked him into their car, that a cold smile had gathered on his lips. John Robinson was middle-aged, neatly dressed, and soft around the middle, a dad to the nth degree. It was difficult for them to believe that this was the cunning and powerful con man who had eluded authorities for the better part of 15 years. A man who had embezzled hundreds of thousands of dollars from unsuspecting victims. A man who was known in the darker corners of the web as simply master. A man who had tortured and raped women and made a lucrative career out of cheating on his wife. A man who, authorities were about to find out, was much more sinister than anyone could have imagined. John Edward Robinson was the worst kind of killer. The kind you thought you could trust. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we We would would be dead. dead the weird skype edition yeah. <laughs> bear with us while we figure this out yeah we're not in the same room for the first time which is really weird super weird we're gonna make it work for you i think that there's like a little delay on my end so if anything sounds a little awkward um that's probably <laughs> why maybe john could take out those breaks yeah john's a pro i trust him completely but just in case Just a warning in case everybody's quarantined, everybody's bored, everybody's dealing with communicating through technology. So my kid's social schedule is like so busy. She has like constant Google meetups. Our kids don't have any Google meetups, which is good. I don't know if they will. Violet has uh, with her friends. She like electively does it. Oh, yeah. They do that. She's so popular. I'm like, I don't have that many friends. (laughs) I do. I did one the other night. Uh, last night, my Connecticut friends called. And we all played categories. Oh, you played a game? That's yeah. so fun. It was cute. I got to FaceTime twice with my friends Jill and Dave, and we talked about um, also trying to play some sort of game together. And now I know it works. Yep. It's worth it. That's delightful. Um, so first, we'd like to thank everyone who attended our Facebook Live Campfire Stories event. <laughs> Woo. It was so fun. Wasn't that a fun time? Yeah, it was. It was great. 
We loved taking you all along for a spooky ride and the sense of community you were all able to have in the comments. If you couldn't watch the live event, never fear. The audio recording is up and you can listen to it wherever you regularly listen to the podcast. So if you haven't yet, check it out. The stories are really fun. (laughs) It's the first time I got to tell a story. You did. Leslie told a whole story. Yeah. She did a great job. It's a spooky ghost story and you guys will super love it. Yeah. And then mine is really gross. (laughs) Yeah. I'm still thinking about it. (laughs) I can show you pictures of the skin suit if you want. There are pictures. No. No. I'm good. You're going to pass? All right. I I offered that up in the group too and nobody responded. So I was like, okay. I'm going to say that's a hard limit and that's a word we will learn later today. Ooh. That's like a (laughs) sexy word, isn't it? Mm, It might be. It is, right? It's a hard limit. I love it. <laughs> All right. Well, before we get started, we're gonna we're gonna do our shout outs uh, for reviews. First, we want to thank Victoria. Thank you for your kind words, and uh, we will make sure we have more of Pod Dog in the future for you. <laughs> thank you, Victoria. He was very popular, my little Pod Dog. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we also want to thank Maureen, who gave us a lovely review over on the Podbean app. That was very kind of you. Thank you, Maureen. Thanks, girl. And uh, one more thank you to everybody who commented during the live recording. You guys were so fun and awesome with your hashtags and funny comments. It was awesome. Yeah, thanks for tuning in, guys. And I have one more. Oh, yes, please. Um, yeah, I want to thank um, my fiancé, John Katedy, who is... Yay! Yay! He, is, uh, he does a lot of our editing, and he also wrote our, our intro song. So our theme song, which a lot of people have said they really liked. So thank you, John. Yeah. And we we couldn't do it without John. (laughs) No, we couldn't. (laughs) Um, But he also is in a band uh, called Behind the Beautiful. And he has Facebook and Instagram, all that stuff. But he's going to be doing some live recordings on like live sessions on Facebook uh, this coming week. So we will um, I'll share them with everyone so they can see. Oh, hi, Flower. My cat is in the way. (laughs) All right, that's all. That's my uh, awkward thank you to John. <laughs> so we'll post we'll post links to John's band in like our all of our social media. So if you guys want to check him out, we uh, we really encourage you to do so. He's great. Um, oh, and we're gonna definitely do another live event this Friday. Yay! Yay! So come back and be spooky with us again. We may be in separate locations, but it will work the same way as last time, and we'll keep you updated on all of our socials. Hopefully, we'll be able to read uh, more of the comments in real time and chat you out, and maybe we'll be able to do a little Q and A this time. Yeah, that sounds good. That could be fun, right? None of us are doing anything else. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> And let's keep the Facebook group rolling in these trying times, you guys. We're approaching our 10th episode, which, as I have stated before, will be your choice. If you have a favorite case, post about it in the Facebook group so we can add it to our list. Then Leslie and I will get together and decide on three to five options and have you all vote. This week we will collect cases. Next week we will vote. And then our 10th week will be upon us. Oh, my. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. 10. I think we've accomplished a lot. Yeah. So far, so good. I think wow. this this week's seven, right? Yes. Yeah. Seven. Eight counting the bonus episode. That was our live yeah. extravaganza. Super exciting. I know. We're rolling right along. It seems like like we just started, but then also it seems like we did so much. So it's really I know. weird. <laughs> I feel like we're at 50. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> okay. So this week's disclaimer, because we always have one. It's not about Dr. Phil this time. No. <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> 
<laughs> we will be talking a lot about the BDSM community in this episode, and we will endeavor to do so with the utmost care and respect. Leslie and I understand that everyone has the right and the privilege to explore whatever they want in the bedroom and beyond. We know that the majority of people in the BDSM community engage in consensual, safe, and mutually respectful activities. We are not making any sweeping generalizations or casting aspersions. We're merely reporting the facts and endeavoring to explain the world in which they occurred. You do you. Yeah. Cool? (laughs) And Leslie will have more on that later. Okay. On with the show. Woohoo. Yeah. Today we are talking about the internet's first serial killer, John Edward Robinson Sr. I know, a little talked about (laughs) guy. And our first serial killer that we've covered. Oh yeah. Yeah, this is this is big. It's monumental occasion. (laughs) (laughs) There will be more, I'm sure, but today is the first one. John Edward Robinson Sr. was born on December 27th, 1943, which is extremely rude because December 27th is also my birthday, and I don't care to share it with him. Yeah. That sucks. (laughs) Hard limit. (laughs) I know. Hard limit. Hashtag hard limit. But I have little choice in the matter, apparently. Robinson was born in Cicero, Illinois, which most of us will recognize as the place where Velma Kelly got into trouble after catching her husband doing number 17, the spread eagle, with her sister Veronica. Yes. You should know that. (laughs) I did, yeah. There you go, which is a musical theater reference. I will post a video this week for anybody who doesn't get it, but I think you all get it. (laughs) I thought you and I were going to break out into song there, (laughs) but I think we're we're a little off time, so it would come out awkward. (laughs) We're out of sync. It would be the worst cell block tango ever. (laughs) (laughs) Anywho, back in Cicero, John Robinson was born to his father, Henry, who worked for Western Electric and binge binge drank on a regular basis. Good times. (laughs) Cheers. And his mother, Alberta, a homemaker and strict disciplinarian. John was the middle child of five and always did what he could to set himself apart, which is a super middle child thing to do. He was an intelligent and charming guy, which earned him a lot of early accolades. When Robinson was 13 years old, he enrolled in Quigley Preparatory Seminary, a prestigious Chicago five-year Catholic school for boys. That's that's a lot. How did he do there? Well, that fall, Robinson also achieved the rank of Eagle Scout at 13, which is not an easy task. Most people that achieve Eagle Scout get it around 18. Some of them are even a little past their 18th birthday. But he was 13. Wow. Yeah, I feel like that's pretty big. Um, Very precise. Yeah. Only 4% of Boy Scouts ever make it to Eagle anyway. Oh, wow. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? It's a very small, like, elite percentage of Scouts do that. Okay. So, good for him. And this was quite an accomplishment for a 13-year-old. Robinson flew to London that fall with a select group of 120 Boy Scouts to meet with Queen Elizabeth II. (laughs) Robinson was selected for this trip because of his charm and scholastic ability. Backstage at this event, he also met and exchanged words with Judy Garland. Oh, my. So much musical theater this week. I know. Robinson always knew how to work a room. After high school, Robinson attended Cicero Junior College, where he studied medical x-ray technology, but did not graduate. Much like our good friend, Carl Danzler. (laughs) Carl. Yeah. (laughs) Carl. (laughs) Making it back in. Watch out for those x-ray techs, apparently. JK, we love you, x-ray techs. (laughs) At 21, John Robinson moved to Kansas City, Missouri, 
Not in Kansas. It's in Missouri. That's confusing. There's two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't like it. All right. Well, he lived in the Missouri one, and he married Nancy Joe Lynch. Robinson was employed to be employed by a physician named Dr. Wallace Graham, whose claim to fame was that he was President Harry Truman's personal physician. Oh, get it. Isn't that nice? <laughs> get it. <laughs> In June of 1967, Graham reported to the Kansas City police that Robinson had embezzled upwards of a staggering $33,000 from his practice. Damn. That's a lot. Yeah. Robinson was found guilty of robbery by means of deceit, which is a crime I've never really heard of in that terminology, but that's what he was convicted of, and sentenced to three years of probation. Oh. That's it. Okay. Yeah, which is very surprising because given the time... Especially, that was a ton of money. Well, he was just a white male, so. Yeah, that's true. And we'll also find out that this is a theme for Robinson. He gets away with so much because he's such a good talker. Mm, there you go. Which is sounds grammatically incorrect, but it's I've heard a lot of people say it. When you're, when you're a good talker, you can get away with yeah. just about anything. Murder. You can get away with murder. Mm. <laughs> After this, Robinson was hired to work for a television repair company and subsequently was fired, but not prosecuted for stealing merchandise. Ugh, get it together. I know, dude. This is just the beginning. In 1969, Robinson was hired to work as a systems analyst for the Mobile Oil Corporation. Robinson's probation offer elected not to tell Mobile Oil about the stealing incident with the TV company. Well, that was nice of them. I know. They liked him <laughs> enough not to even share that. And in 1970, the uh, parole board praised him as a very successful, not parole board, uh, probation board, praised him as a very successful rehabilitated worker. Like he was an example. Mm -hmm. Two weeks after that, Mobile Oil fired Robinson for stealing 6,200 postage stamps. Oh my gosh. (laughs) What? That's so many stamps. (laughs) Yeah. What do you do with that many stamps? Is he selling them on like... Um, Maybe. It doesn't say. It just said he sold them. Who needs 6,000 stamps? Like, I can't. Whatever. But they Mobile Oil fired Robinson over that, and he was charged with theft. Maybe he had a lot of pen pals. Maybe he did. Yeah. Write us if you're a pen pal. Yeah. Let us know. I don't know. Maybe that's how he was getting his victims later. <laughs> My guess is he just <laughs> wanted to sell them. I think you were right initially, because yeah. his, whole, his whole game is money. I think it's the pen pal thing. <laughs> Your theory is cuter. I'm sticking with pen pals. <laughs> okay. Robinson and his wife then moved to Chicago, where he was hired to work for a company called Illinois R.B. Jones. Doesn't say what this company did, just it's a company. Within a month of employment, he was embezzling again, this time to the tune of around $5,500 over the course of six months. Um, and then he was caught and fired again. Robinson's father gave him the funds to repay R.B. Jones, however, and so no charges were filed. Oh, God. He sounds like a millennial. He gets away with everything. (laughs) I know. Daddy, save me. I'm a millennial, so I can say that. I am too, technically. Oh, you are. You are technically, yeah. Mm -hmm. Listen, I'm an elder millennial. (laughs) I hate that term so much. I know. It's gross, right? (laughs) Whatever. I still fall within the limits. So after this incident, Robinson and his wife moved back to Kansas City, the Kansas City area. They move a lot, where he was promptly arrested and finally thrown in jail for violating his probation. So last time when he was given probation, he just left. And then he just came back expecting everything would be fine. And of course, he immediately went to jail. 
because there's only so much you can put up with, I guess. I'm afraid of every little thing. Like, I think everything's going to sh- send me to jail. And this just shows you how far things can go before you actually do go to jail. I know. Like, I think they're going to take me to jail if I have to go to traffic court. And he stole tens of thousands of dollars. Right. I mean, even right now in our certain circumstance, they're letting me know that I can at least go to the grocery store. Mm-hmm. But I'm still afraid I'm going to get pulled over and told a <laughs> $1,000 fine. You won't. <laughs> You're going to be okay getting your groceries. Okay, thank you. I needed to talk about it. <laughs> it's all right. We all, we're, we're all struggling at this point. But he committed a ton of crimes before he ever saw the inside of a jail cell. So after only a few weeks of incarceration, Robinson was then released on good behavior. Oh, mm-hmm. great. And his probation was extended to five years, which would make it end in 1976. Okay. In 1973, while still on probation, oh, there's more, Robinson stole $30,000 from his elderly neighbor, Evelyn McKnight. Mm -hmm. She gave it to him to invest for her because she didn't know a lot about money. So she's like, oh, take my life savings and invest it for me. And he just took it. Of course he did. (laughs) Yeah, because why wouldn't he? But authorities didn't know that that happened. So they released him from his probation two years early in 1974. Oh, man. Yeah, man. Everybody loves this guy for a while. After this, Robinson started a company, because of course he did, (laughs) called Professional Service Association, Inc., which just sounds like a bunch of businessy words that he slapped together to sound like... (laughs) It sounds both confusing and professional. So like when you hear it, you think, oh, I should know what that is, but I don't, and I don't want to sound dumb, so I won't ask. Yeah. (laughs) He just called it PSA. Oh. Which to me is public service announcement, but you know, whatever. Well, that was his clue, his first clue. Oh. Yeah. He didn't perform any public services, so I don't know. No, no, it was like a public service announcement. Like, I'm a creep. Oh, okay. (laughs) Like that. All right. I'll go with you on that one. This company purported to invest money for Kansas City area physicians. And guess where that money went? Where? Not into st- yeah, not into stocks and bonds right into Robinson's pocket. Oh. Robinson was arrested and then fined $2,500 and given just two more years of probation. Man. That's- it's crazy. This yeah. was his third sentence in six years, and he had only served like two weeks of jail time. My God. Yeah. Okay, I know that everyone is here for murders, and all I'm giving you is an endless stream of embezzlement and petty theft. <laughs> but here is why. I want you to see just how relentless, calculating, manipulative, and completely unconcerned for others or the law John Robinson was. He committed crime after crime and essentially got away with them all because he was well-behaved. And he's a white, white dude. Even with his extensive and untrustworthy record, Robinson was continually hired. People handed him their money without hesitation. And this really takes a certain amount of authority and confidence to achieve. Hmm. He had to really exude an air of knowing what he was talking about and being someone you could rely on. Right. So if he can talk people out of their money, he can probably talk them almost out of almost anything. Yeah, yeah. So I just wanted to set that up. In 1977, at the age of 34, Robinson, his wife, and by now their four children moved into a nine-room farmhouse on four acres of land across the state line in Kansas. So they're in real Kansas now, <laughs> which is apparently just a short distance <laughs> from Kansas City, Missouri. So, yeah. They lived in a neighborhood called Pleasant Valley Farms, which sounds like it should be a book series in the 80s. It does. That's so nice. 
doesn't it? This is in Johnson County, which is a super affluent bougie area. The houses were beautiful, lawns were well manicured, and the residents were all successful, well-to-do families. So I'm assuming like it's what we think of when we think of a neighborhood full of McMansions nowadays. Yeah. Robinson started yet another company when he moved there because he loves a company, (laughs) which had to do with hydroponic farming. Uh, which is like the science of growing vegetables in a controlled, nutrient-rich, indoor, optimal environment. Mm-hmm. He earned numerous accolades for this business, including advertising booklets that were printed seemingly by a third party singing his praises. He printed them himself, of course. <laughs> and a banquet, this is one of my favorite facts, where he was honored as Man of the Year, which later was discovered that he threw for himself. Yeah. <laughs> of course he did. Yeah. <laughs> He just threw a big party and was like, the whole town thinks I'm the best guy. Everybody come. <laughs> well, you know, that's not really too far off from what they really do because those people who really? get those, yeah, because they're like, they're like agents will, mm-hmm. or the business or whatever will actually buy those awards. Like you have to buy that award. Really? hmm I thought this was like an elected honor, like people voted on it. I think that I think that's why I don't maybe not all of them. That's but upsetting. Like a Nobel Peace Prize or something, but no, I know a lot of time those other awards are like bought. Wow. For well, yeah, this was on like person. a town level, like Pleasant Pleasant yeah. Valley Farm says you're the best. Yeah. <laughs> but but apparently only he said he was the best, which was later like the whole town discovered this, and a local newspaper totally ratted him out with the shameful yet hilarious headline: "Man of the Year Plot Backfires on Honoree." <laughs> oh, John, John, John! Poor guy. Nobody likes a guy who throws his own party. No. So Robinson had earned himself quite a reputation in town. And he was also thought of as a stern taskmaster among his neighbors. He could be heard frequently yelling at his wife and kids with military precision and would often belittle his neighbors when he was talking about the success of his fake business. Hmm. He's a real treat. Yeah. I can see why people like him. (laughs) Yeah, he was arrogant and unpleasant to a lot of his direct neighbors, and yet he can talk himself out of any situation when he wants to. So that also kind of really exemplifies the fact that he has two different personas altogether. He just turns it on. But that's not who he actually is. I know people like this. I think we all kind of know people like Mm -hmm. that. Not to his extent, definitely. No. No, but it's scary. Yeah. Like you can simultaneously dislike someone and like want to be their friend. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. That's like a high school thing too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like when you want to be friends with the popular girl because she's popular and seemingly great, but she's a total bitch in real life. But then when she's really nice to you, you're like, okay. (laughs) Oh man, you really do like me, but you're talking (laughs) shit to everyone behind my back. She really likes my shirt. (laughs) I love that bracelet. Where did you get it? Terrible. I can make you one. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. So when his farming gig turned out to be less glamorous than he would have liked... Robinson decided to start yet another company he called Equiplus. Oh, okay. Yeah. Again, he just mashed together buzzwords that meant absolutely nothing. Apparently, this company ran seminars for the treatment of back pain. At least that was the heading he went. I know. Why Why do you have the authority to do that? Why is this a business? <laughs> I don't know. But, but here's the thing. Uh, what Robinson really wanted out of that company was to be able to start a philanthropic sister company called Equiplus Two. Okay, real creative. Yeah, just like Equiplus 
another one. <laughs> it's like double tree. <laughs> two trees. <laughs> and and this brings us to um the first set of disappearances. Because this is when he's starting to try and reach out to like disenfranchised women and he gets the idea to take advantage of people like that. So now we have entered the active time of the crimes that we want to discuss and the the scary stuff. And Leslie's going to give us some super fun facts about the years when because this obviously the story jumps around from year to year to year. We need to break it up a little bit. So I thought maybe we'd have some fun facts this time to break up the the grim. Yes. So by this time it was 1984. Ooh. Tell us some 1984 stuff. All right. So in 1984, the mo- molecular biologist. Alec Jeffries developed DNA fingerprinting. Mm. That's like huge. Um, the top song was Like a Virgin by Madonna. Ooh, fun song. The top movies were Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, and The Temple of Doom. Uh, oh, sorry. Indiana Jones and The Temple of Doom. <laughs> right. And Beverly Hills Cop. I was like, wait. <laughs> Those are one movie. <laughs> What a time to be alive. I know. Um, baby on board signs went on the market. <laughs> so glad for those. Yeah. They're not obnoxious at all. And I have two more. <laughs> okay. Um, the the big phrases were, where's the beef? <laughs> and, <laughs> where's the beef? Yeah. And I'll be back. Love it. Good. All so right. take, and then, take into your consciousness this world. Well, there's one more. Oh, yes. Bring yeah. it on. Okay. Dune... <laughs> was released in theaters this year and the theaters had to hand out laminated cheat sheets to minimize audience confusion. <laughs> Leslie loves Dune. <laughs> John listens to it on an audiobook every night, so I'm just like <laughs> slowly getting the story piece by piece. <laughs> Our friend Andrew might get back to it in the Facebook group again. He likes yeah. that a lot. Good. <laughs> All for you, Andrew. <laughs> Woo! All right. So we're in 1994 now, rocking out to like a version and saying, where's the beef? Yeah. <laughs> Robinson has put an ad in a local newspaper um, seeking help with his company. He's just like looking for employees. And this is how he found 19-year-old Paula Godfrey. Paula was a pretty brunette honor student and figure skater. So oh, cute. Yeah. I love that detail. Who had recently graduated from high school. Robinson hired Paula and stated that she would need to take a training course in Texas, which he would send her on, paying all of her expenses. That's very nice of him. Yeah, isn't it? He picked her up at her parents' house in Overland Park, which is a Johnson County suburb, so it would have been, like, right near where he lived. And that would be the last time anyone heard from her. Mm-hmm. I know. So a few days after he picks her up, her parents hadn't heard hiding her hair of her, and they reported her missing to the police. Her father told the authorities that she was working for a man named John Robinson because he gave his real name at this point in time. Okay. He's so cocky. <laughs> yeah, he still doesn't get caught either, which is nuts. And um, so then the father calls Robinson. Apparently, I guess he had a contact for him. And he just claims that she said, well, she's in Texas, and that's all he knew. Then the police contact Robinson, and when he's talking to the police, Robinson denies he ever knew who Paula was. Oh, jeez. And he gets away with that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And here's why. Two weeks after this, the parents get typed letters from Paula stating that she was doing well and just wanted to start a new life for herself. She said they would not be hearing from her that frequently because she was very busy, and all the letters were signed in the bottom in Paula's own handwriting. But the tone of the letters was off. Okay. 
Now, police have nothing further to go on because these are signed documents from Paula in her signature, which they can corroborate with other corroborate. I can never say that word <laughs> with other, you know, instances of her signature. It was her. Yeah. So the police were like, dude, she left. I don't know what to tell you. And that's why he got away with it at that time. Wild. I know. That's nuts, right? So then we're going to skip to Christmas time, 1984. Just a little bit later, Robinson starts an additional business. Starts so many damn businesses. But this is under the heading of that philanthropic business I said he start, started before. Okay. That's where that comes back into play, Equid Plus Two. He starts um, a, like a foundation he calls the Kansas Outreach Program. And he claims this is to help support women in need, especially single mothers. He's looking... <laughs> Yeah, he's looking specifically for single mothers who he will um, help get, you know, get out of a tough situation. He'll help them with housing and food and employment and all that kind of stuff. So he starts reaching out to hospitals and social workers looking for women who need help that he can then, you know, have them refer to his foundation, which is just him. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one of the social workers he spoke to was a woman named Karen Gaddis, and She said, quote, he talked to me about this young lady that he had from a women's shelter in Kansas City. And that woman was um, named Lisa, um, I've heard her name pronounced as Stacy and Stasi. Okay. It's spelled S-T-A-S-S-I. So in my head, I always hear it as Stasi. Yeah, I would say that too. So that's how I'm going to, I'm going to say it here. If it's Stacy... I apologize, and it's only because I got conflicting pronunciations on it, and I went with the wrong one. Sorry. So that week, um, the same week that he talks to the social worker, Lisa Stasi's family gets a phone call, and it's from Lisa. She's clearly very frightened and sobbing, and she has left town with her four-month-old baby, Tiffany, to find herself to, to go and, and work for this gentleman named uh, John. She doesn't have a last name for him at the time. And he has put her up in this hotel and he's going to get her training and then give her a job and a better life. But she tells her parents that she, she feels like something is wrong with the situation. Like she does, she no longer trusts it. And she is at um, a roadway in and she says that the man wanted her to sign four blank papers. Oh, there you go. Mm-hmm. And her father says, don't sign anything, don't do it. And then the phone call is just unceremoniously ended. And her parents are clearly very alarmed. And they don't hear from Lisa for a few days after that. So they report both Lisa and Tiffany as missing to the police. Again, Tiffany is her four-month-old daughter. Okay. The police go and they go to the roadway. What is it, the roadway in, I said? Roadway in. And they um, are able to get a record of phone calls that went out from the rooms. So they're able to find the phone call um, and find that the room is was rented by a man named John Robinson. Yeah. So he used his real name to rent the room for her. So they're able to connect the dots. I know. he's like It seems like he's dumb, but he gets away with everything. <laughs> After this, the family starts getting the type letters again. They get letters from her saying she's just left. She started a better life. She has a job. Everything is going to be okay. And they have her signature at the bottom. Okay. And there's – so the, there's still nothing for the police to go on at this point because we're talking about 1984 and they have signed documents that say she's somewhere of her own free will and she's technically an adult. Right. But they did – I mean, 
she mentioned those papers. They don't have a recording of this conversation. They only have a record that it happened so they could find the room that it came from and who rented the room. Okay. So it's just a chain of events to find this man that she said she was working for, but they have no record that of anything she said. It's really just what the parents have to say and cops can't substantiate it. So that's all they have. Even though, are these the same cops though that dealt with him before on the other case or is this a different town? I'm pretty sure these are different cops. Okay. I don't have the name of the officer on this one. Okay. But there's another link to this chain, to this story. On the same night that Lisa Stacy Stassi disappears, John Robinson shows up at his brother and sister-in-law's home with an infant. (laughs) Now, they have not been able to conceive a child on their own, and they have been looking to adopt a baby. And they've been having a hard time in this process. John tells them, through his outreach company, he has been able to find an adoptable baby for them, and he got her immediately. He said their mother was a, a woman who committed suicide, And the company gave the baby to him, and he had his brother and sister-in-law sign documents and give him over $5,000, and he gave them the baby. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. They named the baby Heather, which is what he claimed the baby's mother was named. He said, oh, her name was Heather, and she killed himself. And this couple, his brother, was so nice that they were like, oh, then we're going to, like, name her after her mother. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, we could connect the dots and tell who that baby is. Yeah. Oh, my god. But gosh. they find out later. Yeah. So this baby is now being raised by his brother and his wife. There are pictures of John Robinson as her godfather holding her and, like, her being adopted and stuff. But because of these, like, foundations he set up, everybody, like, his his brother just thought it was on the up and up. He just oh thought that was gosh. something that was okay. Oh, that must be so horrific when they find out. Oh. Yeah. I mean, we're going to get back to Heather. Okay. She's doing okay. Don't worry. Don't worry. And remember, his brother and his wife have no idea that anything bad has has gone on. They just they just knew they had a baby. They were elated to have this baby, and they they raised her very well. She there's our happy family. Right. Nothing bad happens to her. Mm -hmm. I mean, aside from you know the initial bad thing that happens to her. (laughs) So. Then he's quiet for a little while. Our next disappearance happens in 1987. Yay. Hit us with some facts, Leslie. All right. Well, first fact is this was the year I was born. Mm. So. <laughs> the top song was Faith by George Michael. Ooh, I love that one. Top movies were Three Men and a Baby, Fatal Attraction, and Beverly Hills Cop Number 2. <laughs> Beverly Hills Cop is all <laughs> over the place here. I know. Uh, Legend of Zelda was released for Nintendo. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, I was excited. <laughs> I was very excited at the age of two months. <laughs> um, phase it, or phrases, I'm going to Disney World. Okay. Was coined. Because the guy, the people that won the Super Bowl or something, they said, what are you going to do next? And they said, mm-hmm. I'm going to Disney World. Yeah. Uh, Phil, Sim- Phil Sims of the New York Giants said that. I knew a sports thing. I feel like yeah. I need credit for that. <laughs> Um, the other one was, this is your brain. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Right. With the fried egg. Got Mm -hmm. it. Okay. (laughs) And the last one was, nobody puts baby in the corner. Oh, dirty dancing. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there were just some funny things that happened. Did you know that Matthew Broderick killed two women while driving? What? Yeah. He killed two women while driving carelessly in Ireland 
on a va- why he was there on vacation, and he was fined one hundred and seventy five dollars and no prison time. That thematically fits in so well with the rest of our story. Okay, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, and, and also blows my mind. Matthew Broderick, like Ferris Bueller. <laughs> yeah, our man. Like, ugh, no way. It was crazy. That was the craziest thing. That's really surprising. Good trivia. Yeah. Um, And then this one was interesting. In New York City, the number of people bitten by squirrels that year was 65. But the number number of people bitten by other people was 1,600. Oh, so way more people bites than squirrel bites, y'all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, Red Bull made a big appearance at parties. Like, that was when people started mixing their drinks. Red Bull was a thing in 1987? Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. I thought it was way newer than that. Yeah. Nuts. That is excellent trivia. Okay. Thank you, Leslie. You're welcome. (laughs) Okay, so back to John Robinson. We're in 1987. We're drinking Red Bull. We're saying nobody puts baby in a corner. Yeah. And John Robinson is arrested on fraud charges, because why wouldn't he be? And convicted to jail time. He actually gets some jail time at this point, which is nuts. Finally. Between his conviction and sentencing, so you're convicted of a crime, you're sent home, and then you have your sentencing hearing. Um, I think you have to be bailed out, but whatever. He did get taken home in between. And in that amount of time, a woman named Catherine Clampett goes missing. Catherine Clampett's story is remarkably similar to other ones we know. She had found an ad online seeking someone to work for a company to get, she wanted a job and it would send her out of state for training. Okay. A few days after she leaves, her parents report her missing to the police. A few days after she goes missing, they begin to get letters from her saying she is doing just fine and left to go to another state to start a new life, to get off her feet. Um, to get on her feet, sorry. Or off her feet, just kick him back. Yeah. <laughs> but she's she's starting a new life in another state, and she's doing just fine. They won't hear from her that often. And at the bottom of this typed letter is her signature. So after she goes missing, Robinson actually serves time. Not for her disappearance, obviously, for the fraud charges. And no police alarm bells go off for a while. He spends a little time in actual jail. Shocking. Um, And I just want to, like, touch one second on a previous case because remember um, our soap maker case? She did the exact same thing. Yeah. She had all of her victims write letters and send them to her family. Yeah. I think in that one I had said how that reminded me of something, and I wonder if it was this one. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. But apparently this is a thing I guess the killers do. Yeah. I mean, it's sadly smart. It is. You're right. That is exactly what it is. Ooh, sadly smart. That's a good T-shirt <laughs> and band name yeah. and everything. Sadly smart. Good job, Leslie. Sadly smart. <laughs> so um, Robinson serves his sentence and is released in um, 1994. Yes. Woo-woo. <laughs> um, so we have some more facts. You do. Okay. Ready? Bring it. I like these. We're going to do this every week. It's super fun. <laughs> in 1994, zip drives zip drives were created. Ooh, zip drive. Yeah. They, they really uh, stuck around. <laughs> yeah. Good job. Yeah. Um, the top song was I'll Make Love to You by Boys to mm-hmm. Men. Boys to Men. Yes. 
I'll make love to you. I love when Leslie sings yeah. me songs. <laughs> Top movies were Forrest Gump, The Lion King, and True Lies. Now we're getting into like life that I remember very vividly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the George Foreman Grill was released. Love a Foreman Grill. Mm-hmm. Got me through college. Yep. Major League Baseball Association was on strike, so there was no World Series. Oh. Yeah. Um, the big quotes were, Mom always said that life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Oh, well, that adds up. It was a good impression. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, the Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon was introduced to the world. Oh, love a Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. We're from New Jersey, so we're all like one degree away. Yeah. <laughs> um, Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan ended their friendship. <laughs> yeah, what a shock. Yeah. Wonder why. Um, and an earthquake on the West Coast. This was really funny. An earthquake on the West Coast caused a major power outage. Mm. And a bunch of calls started to come into 911 about this giant silver cloud that was over L.A. So people were like freaking out and they were like, what's happening? Woo! It was just the Milky Way. Oh. So they just have never seen it because of all the lights before. Because the smog? <laughs> oh, that's tragic. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, LA. Um, and then the major deaths that year were Kurt Cobain and Jeffrey Dahmer. Mm. We'll, do, we'll do both of them at some point in time because, okay, spoiler alert, I don't think Kurt Cobain killed himself. No. I'm just going to put it out there in the world. All right. Anyway, so it's 1994. John Robinson has just been released from prison. We're all mourning the death of Kurt Cobain and um, using our zip drives. <laughs> and singing, I'll make love to you. I'll like, make love to you. We're all like rocking out. you want me to. So at this point, John Robinson and his family have lost a considerable amount of money because he's been in jail for a while and all of his companies aren't active, a.k.a. he's not embezzling a shit ton of money from a ton of people. So they have to move. They sell their bougie home in their McMansion neighborhood and move to a mobile home in Olathe County, um, which is like close to where they lived before. And it's on 16 acres of land, but they live in a mobile home. So they have a ton of land, but they just, like, dropped a mobile home on it. There's a lake on the land, there's a mobile home, and a shed. Not shady at all. They're doing it so wrong. Yeah. Well, they were like, we have a lake. We can invite our friends to go fishing. He, like, tried to really talk it up, but it was like a you're just wandering around on a giant piece of land and you have a mobile home. Anyway, that is neither here nor there. At this point, he also buys five computers, which he says are for business. Right. Of course. Right. Why wouldn't they be? And he emerges on the newly um, popular internet in chat rooms as a slave master. Ooh. Now I'm going to throw it over to you in a couple minutes. Just give me a couple more facts. Okay. He frequents a lot of BDSM chat rooms and advertises as a master looking for slaves. He says he will take care of his slaves. He will provide for their, like, he will give them a place to live. He will provide for everything they could want or need, but they just have to submit to him and be his slaves. He will take care of them. Um, Yes, he's still married at this point. No, his wife does not know about it. Yes, he does rent apartments for these women and pay for it. So just to answer a couple questions before we move on. Okay, so before we continue on, Leslie's going to talk to us a little bit about um, BDSM terms 
and the community because you might be scratching your head at like, what do you mean, slaves? That sounds terrible. And what do you mean, master? So Leslie's going to explain a little bit um, of this to us, and then we're going to move on with uh, John Robinson's story. So take it away. All right. So BDSM stands for bondage and discipline, dominance and submission, sadism and masochism. Got it. Yeah. Um. I didn't write too much about, uh, like, what I think John Robinson was actually part of, um, because I'll just go into more of the terminology, but based on the description of him calling himself, like, a slave master and... And I'll get into that afterwards, too. I can tell you what he was doing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was definitely part of... uh, There's different aspects of BDSM, and one of them is uh, called Gorian philosophy. Mm -hmm. And that's actually, like, a fan fiction thing that got brought up, but now is... Yeah, it's from these books. um, I think his name was John Norman, and he created these books called, like, they were gore books, G-O-R, and they were, yeah, so it was a whole big thing back in, like, the mid-60s, and I think they stopped making them, like, I think a bunch of feminists came up and were like, we need to stop this, but it was just a story that this, like, guy wrote, and he wrote, like, 33 books or so, they were basically just, like, they were, like, um, romance novels, but for men, really, (laughs) and And they talked a lot, that's nuts, yeah, and he was just writing these stories. He didn't necessarily mean for anybody to, like, become Gorian. So. Right, right, right. Um, so anyway, so there's a whole now subculture of this Gorian lifestyle, and they believe in this dominance. Like, men are dominant, women are submissive, and it's a whole philosophy. And anybody involved in it is... Uh, they are consensually there. Like, they want to be a part of it. They feel this lifestyle. Women... Like Hmm. they volunteer, they voluntarily go to this because they believe that that's who they are and what they want. And now that's not the entire BDSM community, though. There are a lot of people that believe in dominant women and and stuff like that. That's just a specific sect of people. Absolutely. And within this philosophy, it's one of those things where like women could become dominant. So it's not, it's very open to it. Um, But that's like the idea. Okay. So, and they do call them, the women call themselves slaves. And the men are masters. Okay. So, okay. So now we'll get into some terminology. Yes, give us a glossary. Yes. Okay. So first off, activities and relationships within a BDSM context are often characterized by the participants taking on complementary but unequal roles. Okay. Thus, the idea of informed consent of both partners is essential. Yes, please. Mm-hmm. Consent. Yeah. Um, okay, so our first word is negotiation. Okay. Uh, before a scene ever starts, um, usually like a couple days before the the two people involved or whoever's involved will um, kind of step outside their roles and they'll kind of go over their limits, their preferences, uh, that kind of stuff. Um, it's usually not done. They usually don't draw up any contracts or anything like that if it's just like a, a one-day thing. But if it's going to continue, there's usually a contract involved. Okay. So contracts come for like long-term relationships because mm-hmm. that comes back into play with us later. Okay. Cool. And they did that in Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> Which I still never watched. I just know there was a contract. Listen, I watched like, I want to say half of it just because I wanted to like be socially relevant. Yeah. And the writing... The writing was so, so, so bad, bad that I 
I had to step away. Like I couldn't handle it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Next word. Bondage. We all know what that is probably. Tie me up. Um, Got it. Yeah. <laughs> In most cases, the dominant partner is resisting the submissive. So they're usually ropes, handcuffs, Velcro, specialty hooks, clasps. <laughs> or simply a belt if you're on a budget. Well, that comes into play in one of our victims. Okay. So. Oh, this is making me sad. Okay. Then we have um, dominant and submissive. So, again, yeah. those make sense. In charge, not in charge. Yeah. And then sometimes they can switch roles. Oh. But the interesting part is um, the it seems like the person being submissive has, like, the worst role. But in their defense, um, they get to set the boundaries. So everything's pre-negotiated before. And so if, like, the submissive doesn't like getting slapped, they can say that. Okay. You know, like... This also comes into play later, so this is all very useful information. Also, there's someone who, like, that's what they crave in this relationship. They would like to surrender their will to someone else. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, a masochist is someone who gets off on receiving sexual pleasure or sexual pain. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, then there is um, <laughs> houseboy. Houseboy? House- is that like yeah. a neighbor boy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the the houseboy agrees that he will pay a very low rent and in exchange he would keep the house clean and also just be their sexual plaything whenever they wanted. It doesn't sound terrible to have a houseboy. No, I feel like there was a lot of college kids that had to do that. <laughs> I'm just going to put it out there into the world. It doesn't sound terrible. So, no. Um, okay, impact play. This refers to any impact on the body, such as spanking, caning, flogging, slapping, you know, all of that goodness. Yeah, good times. Yeah. Um, I liked this one. There's hard limits versus soft limits. Oh, we've said hard limits a lot of times, so bring it on. Yeah. All right, so hard limits are sexual acts that are completely off limits. Everyone has their own, and you have to discuss these boundaries before any BDSM play. Okay. So, for example... Please do not pee on me. Golden showers are one of my hard limits. <laughs> Fucking love that Leslie is saying this, all of these things. It's, it's pretty great, you guys. <laughs> but then there are soft limits. And soft limits is where there might be an activity that the person would rather just avoid, but they may agree to be eased into them. So like a small sprinkle of golden shower. Like a little bit of pee is fine, but not yeah. like full bladder full. Yes. All right. Gross. Then we have a couple other quick ones to go through and then one one that shocked me. Oh, yay. Shocking. Yeah. I love shocking. Mm-hmm. All right. So we have needle play. That's like um, close. There's needle play and edge play. So edge plays where there's usually going to be a bit more blood that happens with that. That does not really enter in. Well, that's not true. One of, one of our victims was... I'll get to a little bit of that. Okay, because that's where they'll play with like a knife or something more harmful. Mm-hmm. And then uh, needle play is where they'll just kind of use an, obviously a needle, but it'll just be like light pricking. So there sometimes might be blood, but this one's kind of weird because this is where it's like they're sticking the needle through like a nipple or guys, if you want to cover your ears, like the shaft of their, you know. Okay, if you're we're Albert gonna Fish, move on. You just- Keep them all in your taint. <laughs> yeah. We're going to move on. Okay. Google and then Albert Fish Holly, for a good time, friends. <laughs> okay. Holly, you'll know this term. Will I? No? Yeah. Okay. 
A voyeur is someone who enjoys watching others have sex, undress, or whatever floats their boat. Why would I know that? <laughs> I don't know. I just wrote it down. I don't I don't watch um, people get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so this again is different than a peeping tom because this voyeur would have been like people would have consented to this happening. Okay, so people you know? like they like to yeah. watch, those people like to be watched. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's, um, is this because I'm an actor? You thought I would know because I like to perform. I don't want to. Perf- I don't want anybody to watch me having sex. No, this you is you Just wanting to watch them. I don't want that either. So, okay. all right, got it. Um, there's queening. I don't have the guts to say this because I already felt embarrassed saying one of the other ones. Wait, what is so it called? You guys can look that up. Queening. What is it called? Queening. Queening. Yeah, queen. Like yas queen. Yeah. Like yas queen. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so that's like... Guys, 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 Google it and put it on the Facebook page because I want to know what it is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a powerful one, so I'm like all for it, but... <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay. Um, then there's scat play. You know what scat... Nope. Shut it down. <laughs> we don't need that one. We don't use it. Yeah, yeah. We all know that that's poop and I'm out of here. Yeah. Well, so that's funny because Ella Fitzgerald is a term as well. What? It's a euphemism for scat play, so it's used around content-restricted areas. Oh, like scatting like jazz scat? Yeah, exactly. So they'll... Like scoobity bop bop So someone might say, if they're like in an area that's kind of... Because a lot of chat rooms will restrict um, scat play or different places might restrict it or something. I wonder why. Right? So they'll restrict it, even though they'll be like, we know it's your thing, but we just don't do that here. So somebody in the chat room might say, I'm a fan of Ella Fitzgerald. And then they'll connect with somebody that also is. And then they'll know what they're both into. I (laughs) can never think of Ella Fitzgerald the same way again. No, I can't. And also like. That will not come back around. Okay. So Good. Okay. So we're done with that one. And um, I saved the nice one for last. There's, oh, it's there's called, a nice one. Yeah. It's called aftercare. Aw. It's considered the dominant's responsibility to bring a submissive person back down to earth at the end. So making sure that the person is calmed down, caressed, checked in with, feeling okay. Aw. That's their job. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. none of that here. But that's really nice. Yeah. Okay. okay. My heart rate is going strong. Do you have yet, Leslie? <laughs> My mom's going to be so sad. Oh, she Diane, you listen. can't listen to this one. Get out of here. She doesn't listen. She's like, when you make a soap podcast, I'll listen to that. Oh, yeah, no, she doesn't yeah. listen at all. That's no. fine. <laughs> Thanks, Don't worry. Mom. I don't think my parents do yet either, but my parents are not very shockable, so they'd be fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Birches, they don't care. <laughs> all right. So thank you for that. Um tutorial. Uh, So that's going to bring us to a woman named Suzanne Troughton. Her name is spelled T-R-O-U. Suzette. Sorry, not Suzanne. I'm so sorry. Her last name is spelled T-R-O-U-T-E-N. So I assume it's pronounced Troughton. Mm -hmm. If it's Truton or something else, feel free to correct me. I apologize to their family, but I'm just doing what I can. She's 28 years old. And she comes into play in 1999, because we're going to party like it's 1999. Hold up, it is. Do we have 1999 no, facts? Sorry. <laughs> we do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I thought that we were going to have some more about, like, the Y2K, but we really didn't. Um, so the Y2K was a bust in 1999. <laughs> oh. Um, 
The top song was Smooth by Rob Thomas and Santana. Oh, yeah. That's a fun one. Top movie. I was a senior in Mm -hmm. high school. (laughs) Top movie was Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, The Sixth Sense, and Toy Story 2. Aw. Quotes were, I see dead people. Of course. And is that your final answer? Oh, gross. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, this is cool Until 1999, the state of Montana Didn't have a speed limit on the interstate On the interstate (laughs) And and instead Big uh, And instead they just encouraged drivers To be reasonable and prudent Listen, just don't go that fast, Montana Yes God Um, Big mouth billyfish was brought into our lives (laughs) Oh, the big mouth fast thing yeah. that was like on the wall and it's saying weird songs cool yeah okay. my dad has one of those <laughs> um oh this woman joan murray survived okay. a fourteen thousand five hundred foot fall after Ooh, her joan murray yeah after her parachute didn't deploy while skydiving so she I remember landed that. yeah she landed on a mound of fire ants that stung her hundreds of times Jolting her with a lot of adrenaline, keeping her heart going. How the fuck much luck do you have to have for that to be your situation? That's crazy bad luck, but also good luck. Wild. Yeah, that is wild. All right. The last one I have is November 5th. This was National Burn All Gifts Day. So they wanted, these people wanted to put an end to all the gifts. But um, like Christmas gifts? No gifts. Like um, oh gifts. Oh, yeah, some people okay. call them gifts. They're just wrong. I do not. Yeah, we're <laughs> team gifts. Yeah. So, and I was just thinking, I was like, can you imagine? I would not be getting through this quarantine without some gifts. Nope, none of us would. <laughs> so that's all I got. I love it. Nineteen ninety nine. So Suzette Troughton is twenty eight years old in nineteen ninety nine. She's watching Toy Story two. Probably. She's like. Liking gifts, despite what other people have to say. And she's looking on the internet um, in BDSM chat rooms. Now, Suzanne Troughton is kind of a a wild child. She was very much into that lifestyle. She had quite a a, a few piercings. Like you mentioned, I think she had her nipples done. She had some downstairs. Okay. And um, she liked to take pictures, and she liked to live kind of dangerously, which, you know what? You do you, Suzette. Have a great time, girlfriend. She finds an ad on a BDSM chat room for someone who would like a submissive, a slave, and they also want this person to be a caretaker for their elderly father. So... Not only are they going to enter into a master-slave contract with this person, but they will also have a job wherein they make money. So this feels like an ideal situation for Suzanne. She wanted to experiment with being submissive, and she agrees to do this. And she moves to Kansas City, and after she moves, Suzette's mother starts to get some unusual emails from her. She said they just don't sound anything like... Suzette, they just, am I saying, if I'm saying Suzanne, I'm so sorry. It, like for some reason, when I glance down, it looks like that to me. Um, her mother really feels like, like something is off in her situation. She hasn't directly talked to her daughter, um, voice to voice in a very long time. And she's moved and these emails don't, they just don't read like her. I read one report where it said like they were all, um, grammatically correct and spelled right. <laughs> Aw. 
That would be like I me. Know. That sucks. <laughs> it's a, it's a sad thing to say, but like it's just an example of how um, if you weren't used to that mm-hmm. and you got that all of a sudden, you'd be like, wait a minute, I don't feel like that's the same person. So she reports Suzette missing to the police, and they they sus- they suspect John Robinson after you know kind of tracing the events that um, like Suzette's internet history and. Um, mm-hmm her employment and stuff, they can kind of trace it back to him. And th- and at this point, because they're back in Kansas City, they have like a chain of events for John Robinson. They have other reported things that happened, this embezzlement. They're, it's enough to be quite suspicious of him. So the police begin to follow him. Like, um, not not just follow him, but they, they really stake out all of his places. And um, they find that during the day, he's, like, going into a lot of rough neighborhoods mm. and spending short amounts of time in motel rooms. He's always with women. And when he's in the hotel room or motel room, I should say, with these women, they hear violent noises coming from it. But the cops are in a very unique position because they also are tracking some of his internet history at this point. We're in a, a point in time where they can kind of – see what he's doing online a little bit. Mm-hmm. And they see that he's he's meeting women who have signed on to be slaves. They've signed on to be submissive. So technically, the cops can't break the door down because this is a consensual event. Right. They're in a really horrible corner at this point. They're backed into a really terrible corner. And he does this every day. He leaves home in the morning like he's going to work. He meets with a bunch of women in rough-ass neighborhoods, has – what seemed to be very violent encounters, and then returns home to his wife and family. Like nothing happened. Like he just went to work for the day. It's so mm-hmm. wild. Um, and, and Suzette's mother, this is so crazy. She also agrees to wear a wire, and she gets in touch with John Robinson, and she meets with him person to person. And and he says the quotations are crazy. They're all like, oh, no, hon, you don't know what you're talking about. She just is working for me. She's off doing training. She's fine. He's very – he calls her hun and sweetie like all the time and totally like – dismisses any of her feelings or concerns and says that like everything's fine he barely hears from her which is nuts to me yeah but it happens and super brave of Suzette's mom to just be like yeah I will go in wearing a wire and talk to this guy but they don't get any real evidence police at this point are suspecting that John Robinson is involved in prostitution he's like okay well he finds women who are down and out and he traffics them essentially he brings them into like clients that are other men or whatever, and and he's kind of like a pimp. That's what they think is happening, and they think also this is like a weird little tagline. They also think maybe he's selling babies. Why would they think that? Because of the baby that went missing. Oh right, right. They only have one. They're like, well, maybe he's also in it for these women who are like down and out. Maybe they're having babies. Yeah. So these are the things the police suspect him of. Just saying. Then, while they're following him around. A woman comes forward to the cops. She is was in one of these motel meetups with him. And during it, she runs runs away from him and runs to the front desk, like half-dressed and clearly beat up, and asks for them to call the cops. And she tells the cops that he um, she had said that she would meet up with him and that she would be in this submissive position with him, but she started doing things that she never agreed to. Right. Which goes back to what you said. So she, they said, like, you're not going to hit me hard. You're not going to leave marks. You're not going to do certain things. And he completely ignored their entire contract and just went, like, way far past her boundaries. 
Um, and so she reports him to the police for sexual battery. And she was smart enough to also find out uh, his name from the front desk. Like, who is the man? Because, of course, she was given, like, a different surname for him. Okay. I don't remember which one it is. But she asked the police, like, who rented this room? Just so I can re- – I'm reporting it to the cops. And they they gave her the name. They're like, oh, his name is John Robinson. It's on. It was on a business account, apparently. Mm. He's covered in businesses. The cops are like, okay, good. We have – we now have dots to connect. And then a second woman comes forward. In almost an identical situation, she had met up with this man, agreed to have a sexual encounter with him, and it went way beyond her limits, and she reported him to the police for sexual battery. So now the police have enough evidence to put out a warrant for his arrest for sexual battery. They go to John Robinson's mobile home on his giant farm, like I said in the opening, and they apprehend him. They seize, they have warrants to seize all of his computers and his, like, all of the memory and, like, anything he has saved. And it's a lot. Yeah. Like I said, it's like five, it's five computers worth of material. Oh, oh, I forgot he had the five computers. Yeah, it's a lot. That's a lot. Um, and they also receive warrants to inspect all of his properties. Now, he has three properties. He has the 16-acre property wherein he has a mobile home and a shed. Then he has a storage unit near nearby there because he's in Kansas at this point. He has a storage unit in Kansas. And then he also has a storage unit in Kansas City, Missouri. Okay? So the police go to his storage unit in Kansas first. And they find a treasure trove of driver's licenses and social security cards and birth certificates and blank papers with signatures at the bottom. Oh, boy. And some of them are from Paula and Lisa Stasi and Suzette. So they think, okay, well, something is, something is seriously going on here. Why would he have all of their vital information? Right. Um, and the next place they, you know, I guess the warrants came in as they came in. The next place was his, the, the, where the family was living. So they search the mobile home and they don't really find anything. And they go out back to the shed. Shed is never a good thing. <laughs> now, in front of the shed are large, what look like hazardous waste barrels. And they go to move them to get into the shed. I know Leslie's shaking her head so hard right now. <laughs> they just want to move them to get into the shed. They don't think there's anything. Uh, why wouldn't they? And they observe that when they move the barrel, the bottom is leaking a fluid that looks a lot like blood. Mm-hmm. And they have attracted a certain amount of flies. Ooh. Also never good. So they crack open the barrel. And the first barrel is clearly Suzette. Her body has been decomposing for some time at that point. Um, and she is identified by um, some of her piercings. Oh, Okay. Right. Yeah. So, uh, oh, I don't know if I mentioned when I went into his arrest. I know I mentioned it in the opening, but his arrest came to play in 2000. So there's the sting operation where they followed him and got this evidence took about a year. So this is in 2000. Um, If we want to talk about 2000, we will in one second. Okay. I'll give you a minute. (laughs) Sorry. My notes are all over the place. Um, It's it's been a rough quarantine time. (laughs) And there are, there's another barrel there too. Oh, good. Yeah. So now they, 
they kind of go, they approach this thinking it's one of the, uh, one of the other missing women. They think they're going to find Paula Godfrey or Lisa Stasi. Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't. Oh. They find another woman who they have never seen before. And they send her to the medical examiner and they reveal that she's a woman named Isabella Luica. Isabella was a 19-year-old student um, who authorities discovered Robinson had kept as one of his, like, kept slaves, like his mistresses. He paid for an apartment for her and all of her necessities. And he had lots of explicit photos of her and was, I guess, carrying on some sort of relationship with her. And then I guess it just didn't go the way he had planned. Um, He also had – they also threw chasing – Tracing his chain of events, discovered that he had sprinkled through his, you know, the, the time we had spoken about, lots of mistresses that he kept in apartments. Like, if he had a mistress, he just paid for their lifestyle. Right. So, chase, I can't say tracing for some reason. Tracing his chain of events, they start to find these other people. They're like, oh, shit, this is a thing he did. Right. And one of those women, obviously, Finally. was Isabella, who they found. Okay. So, before we move on to the next storage unit... We can talk about the year 2000 to give us okay. a little bit of like a, a breath before yeah. we get on to more gross stuff. All right. So, um, you know, since we're all struggling for toilet paper out there, I thought this was an interesting fact. We are indeed. Uh, Scott toilet paper was only six ninety nine for a 12-pack. Nice. Yeah. I think it's a lot more now. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it is in this like Mad Max day and age. Yeah. It's like 100 or $200 right. now for a 12-pack. Mm-hmm. Um, or your first child for like one role. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Basically. Right. Um, the top song was Independent Woman by Destiny's Child. Yes. <laughs> when we yeah. still celebrated all of Destiny's children and not just Beyonce. Yes. <laughs> uh, the movies were How the Grinch Stole Christmas, Aww. Cast Away, and Mission Impossible 2. Oh. Um, this was also when I think Meet the Fockers came out because oh. the quote was... I have nipples, Greg. Could you milk me? Oh. <laughs> Love that quote. Delightful. Um, Blockbuster declined the offer to purchase Netflix for $50 million. Dumb Blockbuster. <laughs> no. That was a sad one. Oh, man. <laughs> and then I have two about friends. Okay. So when the cast of friends wouldn't come down from their $1,050,000 per episode salary demands, mm-hmm. NBC produced promo saying, you love them for seven years. See how it all ends with the series finale of Friends this Thursday. Oh, no. So you know that the show lasted for, I think it was 10 years. Yeah. So the cast agreed to lower their salaries after they saw that promo. Oh, man. That's <laughs> nuts. Yeah. That's a crazy tactic. And... uh this was also the year that Brad and Jen were married. Ugh. I know. Tragedy. Super. But, okay, that was That it. was good trivia. Thanks. Is that all our year 2000? That, well, that yeah. broke up the tense atmosphere nicely. Yeah, this was, um, th- this was actually the most boring year of all of them to research. I graduated high school. Oh, well, there you go. So that made it <laughs> less boring, right? Yeah, for sure. Okay. So now we know that John has a habit of keeping mistresses and paying for their lifestyle. We've discovered two bodies. One of them is said kind of a mistress and slave. The other one is Suzette. So then the authorities go to his other storage unit in Missouri. 
And when they get to a storage unit, they open, you know, they're like garages. They open it up and they go inside and they weed through the things in there. And in the back, there are three more of these large barrels. Oh. And they are placed in kiddie pools filled with kitty litter. Oh. Right. He thought the litter might absorb any kind of smell in case they leaked out of the bottom. <sighs> well, he was an x-ray tech, so he knew a lot about medical I stuff. I guess. I don't know, but this is what he did. So they, at this point, like the two um, state police departments had, have obviously communicated with one another. And when they say they find these barrels, um, Kansas says to Missouri, like, there are bodies in those barrels. So you're going to want to send them off to a medical examiner to be looked at. You're not going to want to, like, crack them open right now. So they do as much, and the bodies are uh, the barrels are opened, and they're expecting to find again the bodies of like Paula Godfrey or Lisa mm-hmm. Stassi, um, but they don't. The first two barrels are of a mother and daughter named Sheila and Debbie Faith. Sheila was forty five, and Debbie was fifteen, and they were both disabled. Debbie was wheelchair bound. And um, Sheila had her own host of disabilities. They find out that they met John Robinson online, and he said he, like, kind of courted them and said he was going to provide a really wonderful life for them. He was going to help her get a job. He was going to treat her like a queen. He was going to provide for her daughter. And he had been collecting their disability checks for years since then. What a douche. Yeah, he's terrible. Uh, And the third barrel was a woman named Beverly Bonner. Now, Beverly Bonner was a nurse... In the one prison that John Robinson, oh, he stayed in two prisons. She was in the the second one where he was for a while. She was a nurse at the prison. And while he was in prison, he had a series of small strokes. So he had a lot of time in the prison infirmary with this nurse. And he um, charmed her and courted her and got her to leave her husband. And she was collecting alimony checks. And once he had gotten rid of her... He collected all of her alimony checks. This guy. <laughs> yeah. Is, he's, he's the worst. He really is. Oh, my gosh. I mean, he's he's definitely good at finding probably the right people. Oh, he absolutely us. is. He is an yeah. A-plus predator. He knows who's going to say yes and who he can attract. Yeah. Um, police never even knew these three women were missing. That's wild. No one reported. Yeah, no one reported. Um, any of them. They just didn't have family. Oh. Yeah, but she had a job. Well, maybe she, like, quit her job. Because that's a thing. That's, like, a I lot of... I think she did. Yeah, because a lot of the slave masters will be like, I'll support you with everything. Like, you no longer work. This is just what you do. That's that's what his ad said. Like I said, he said he would take care of his slaves. He would provide them with a place to live, everything they need, so they wouldn't need to keep their jobs. Okay. So this, this woman would have just... They would have left their entire life behind, and if... She is recently divorced and just collecting alimony. We don't know how much family she has, how frequently she talked to her family. Sheila and Debbie were just, you know, they were mother and daughter. So if they didn't have other family, yeah, they really didn't have many people. No one reported them, so they couldn't really have had a whole lot of other family. It's just sad because you know that they agreed to this because it was definitely something that they probably needed or... Yeah, they, they liked, saw hope. You know, yeah, they saw hope. Oh, so sad. Okay. Yeah, which is super devastating. And... um. The police, uh, the medical examiner, rather, discovered that every single one of these women was killed with a with blunt force trauma to the head from a large hammer. Okay. And none of them had any defensive wounds. So what would have happened is that they were in a trusting position with him. They were mm-hmm. just doing something, and he just, just cracked him in the head, and that was it. 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Suzette showed some other, like, damage on her, but it was kind of consistent with the relationship she would have had with him. And judging by Suzette's lifestyle, we don't know. Some of that might have been consensual, but probably not. Um, So, unfortunately, the bodies of Paula Godfrey, Lisa Stethy, and Catherine... What was Catherine's last name? I'm so sorry, Catherine. Clampett. Their bodies were never found. And they still haven't been found. So um, in January in January of 2003, because as we've discussed previously, it takes a long time to get your trial once you're arrested. Um, he's tried uh, in Kansas and convicted with first-degree murder and given a sentence of life for the murder of Lisa Stassi. They think they have enough evidence because, you know, the baby. Mm-hmm. Um And he's given two death sentences for Isabella and Suzette. Then he's extradited to Missouri for his trial there. Because remember, there's two different states, so that means two different trials. And in Missouri, he is given um, a blanket sentence. He's given a life sentence for the murders of Sheila, Debbie, Beverly, Paula, and Catherine. And here is why. They said if he pled guilty, they wouldn't give him a death sentence. Because they thought that this would result in him telling the lo- telling them the locations of the other bodies, which he never did. Yeah. Yeah, because he's garbage. But it doesn't matter because he's in Kansas on death row there, currently still awaiting um, an appeal for his sentence. He's still awaiting? Mm-hmm. He's wow. still on death row and he's trying to appeal his sentence right. still. You get like two appeals. He's such a – I can't. He's very. I can't with him. Yeah, he's manipulative and horrible, and that is the story of John Edward Robinson Sr. That's wild. Woof. Yeah, that was a lot yeah. to get through. I um, I have an extra little tidbit about Suzette for Go ahead. you. Bring it um, on. I was while researching this because I was trying to understand what um, John Robinson was like actually into with the BDSM. Right. So that's where I found. Like, kind of connected him to that Gorian lifestyle. So, Suzette... Okay. Suzette met him in a Gorian chat room. Oh! Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So, she was definitely looking for that specifically. Mm -hmm. And he just seemed like a perfect opportunity because, like you said, she can make money. Mm -hmm. Um, I think she was trying to help him build a website. I forget what the name is now because I didn't write it down. But it was... Well, that checks out because all these freaking companies... Yeah, but it was like... It was um, had to do with, like, the slave master's... um, something cult it was it was like an occult kind of thing and i don't know oh, it was God. crazy but he, it was just a website he was trying to make and she thought that it was this whole organization that he was actually like the leader of that he was the slave master of well that adds up yeah mm-hmm. you know what i also um watched a couple documentaries on him they're hard to find they're on youtube but you can find them if you want to watch um i'll see if i can get some links for anybody who wants to check them out um And one woman who was, like, presented as an authority in the BDSM lifestyle said that, like, his screen name everywhere was just Master. Okay. He didn't have any other names associated with him. And she said that's kind of a red flag because no one just refers to themselves as the sole and only Master. Right, yeah. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what this woman said. Well, that was – he made – I think he made this whole thing up where, like, he got ordained as the Master of this whole – group so like those women might have known that there were other women involved Mm -hmm. because he was like part of a whole organization 
Yikes. It was wild. But um, but to Suzette, um, one of the things I thought was interesting was um, that before she was killed, mm-hmm. a few days prior, I think it was either, her, I think it was her sister. I know okay. she was in contact with her mom, but I think she had a sister. Yeah. And she told her that she just wrote to her saying that she was like kind of bored and wanted... Like, I think I might come home. I'm just getting bored with this. Mm-hmm. And so she must have had, like, she was fine with their relationship, but just kind of getting bored. And John Robinson saw the that message to her. That's when he started writing weird messages back to the sister. Oh, shit. Okay, so that it was definitely her mom because that's who he communicated with. Is that? Okay, so I'm sorry. So, so then with her mom. So he was writing, you know, strange messages back to her and... That was like another red flag to her. And so she alerted the police then, which she might have done earlier, but alerted again. I mean, maybe there was a sister too, but all my information says mom. So whatever, Mm -hmm. it trickled back down to the same person. Yeah, because she was like, she was just about to leave and now she's not. And then she was killed shortly after that. Like it would have been, yeah. Okay, yeah. So my feeling is, is that he was killing them when they were wanting to leave. Well, not all of them. Some of them was just to continue to collect benefits from them. That Well, but that yes. too. Mm-hmm. But yes, with like Isabella, that might have been the case with her and with Suzette because they don't, they, he wasn't making any money off of them. So yeah, it would have just been because he didn't want them to reveal like their situation or whatever. Yeah. <sighs> he kept his, because he kept his family through this whole thing. He did, yeah. Did, I mean, they obviously divorced at some point. Right. And well, what once he was in jail, I believe. Yeah. I don't think until then. Because there it's very conflicting about how much his wife knew. She claims to have known absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. And maybe she didn't. He was pretty skilled at this. Um, also, Heather Robinson, Lisa Stasi's baby. Yeah, yeah. When all of the like all of this came to light, they um were able to find out who she really was um by a footprint. Oh. I don't remember exactly how they did it, but it was like by a by a DNA evidence through a footprint, and they confirmed that she was, of course, you know, actually Tiffany Stassi, and um, they found her her biological father, and it, you know she elected to to stay with the Robinsons. Oh, okay. Because they had raised her, she was perfectly, she was well taken care of and happy. She had a good home and a good family. Um, she just found out later in life that she her. Her mother was killed and and she found her family in this horrible way. There's like a, a really great um, interview with her on one of the like news yeah. 2020 or something like that, which I'll try and locate. But like she she definitely has, has spoken out about this and he was like her uncle. That's so wild. He was in her life. Like John Robinson was in her life the whole time and she never suspected a thing. It was like a huge shock to her. Wow. Well, so we'll bring that back to 1984 when the molecular biologist, Alec Jeffries, developed that DNA um, fingerprinting method. There you go. So if it wasn't for him, they wouldn't have found her footprint. That is very true. Good trivia. Mm -hmm. That worked perfectly. I don't know if I have further information on that footprint. I just... I know it was mentioned that she was identified by her footprint because, like, you know, when babies are born, they're footprinted and then... So that's how it would have been done. But that's wild. Like, who would have thought to... Did the parents, like, suspect something was up and then maybe wanted to test? Or, like, why would they have tested that? Um, There's also, in the interview with Heather Robinson, there's a quote. It's only in one place, so I didn't really mention it as much. Um, When everything started to go down, um, her parents put it together 
kind of quickly. They were like, oh my God, you're going to get taken away from us. This is something that's happening. We we didn't know at the time, but like you're this baby. Like they they knew. Yeah, it had to have lined up. Yeah. Yes. And they were, again, these people are upstanding citizens. They Mm -hmm. did nothing wrong. They took really good care of their baby. They did not know there was any kind of nonsense going down with her. So they were victims in it just as much as anybody else. Like crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I think that it might have been in the interview with her that I I didn't watch the whole interview. I I read like other things. So that might have been where that came from. There's so... There's so many sources and stories and personal Mm -hmm. accounts in this that it's really kind of a lot of information to wade through. So forgive me if a couple of my things got confused. Um, Yeah. This is just sad because it's like it is is a lifestyle. I mean, it's not a huge portion of the population that does this, but I mean, it's pretty large. It just stinks that like, I mean, these women thought that they were going into safety, but they did. They thought they were going into a safe circumstance wherein they would be taken care of and they would engage in a lifestyle that they consented to. Yeah. So it's pretty brutal. Yeah. Okay. Well, that is uh, our first serial killer, John Edward Robinson Sr. Uh, now um, we should toast. Okay. Do you know who you think you would like to toast to? I know who I want would like to toast to. Um. Yeah. I was going to jokingly originally toast to Alec Jeffries for the... <laughs> DNA, but but there's a couple other people I'd rather do that for. Okay, so mine was gonna be Heather. Me too. Okay, yay. Oh, we're so good at this. I know. <laughs> Absolutely, Heather Robinson, who was an unwitting victim in this situation. But you know what? She um, at the time she was taken, she was with a single mother who was really struggling, and she ended up raised being raised by an extremely loving and well-to-do family. So while I don't think she's better off because that's a terrible thing that happened to her, at least she was left in a situation that did not injure her further and allowed her to kind of grow and thrive. Yeah. And once she found it out, she got past it. So, Yeah, Yeah, that's great. Cheers to Heather Robinson, a.k.a. Tiffany Stassi. Yeah, yeah. Clink. Uh, Oh, wait. Yeah, clink. I made a sound. Good. <laughs> uh, well, now I just keep thinking about the his wife and kids. Like, the, huh? Yeah, they claimed complete ignorance. His wife said he did. I mean, his kids probably wouldn't have known anything because yeah. why would they? But like, it's weird to think that his wife. He had all these like he was paying for apartments for other women. Right? How? How do you not know? I don't know. You know what though? I've said it before. You people don't know things they don't want to know. Yeah, absolutely. If she didn't want to believe that was happening, she could easily have just been like, "You're just I'm just being paranoid. I don't want to know it. I won't investigate this further." And she could have just ignored signs. Well, I mean, they also lived um they also lived in a like a trailer. They did. You know. Mhm. There was a point in time where like she found out he was being unfaithful, but that's all. And they went through marriage counseling and then they just continued on with their relationship. So it's really like the, the point in the story is like a blip on the radar because nothing resulted from it. She's like, oh, he's having an affair. We go through counseling. We're fine. So clearly she's someone who didn't really want to see what was happening under her nose. Right. Okay. And no judgment, man. I mean, that's hard. I mean, you would, you're not thinking that you're, even if you think something might be wrong, like maybe he's cheating You don't cheating think your husband's me. murdering women. Exactly. Like that's terrible. That's really rough. Oh, okay. So, 
Are you ready to sew it up? I'm ready. I'm interested to see what you're about to say. I know. It was a hard one to wrap up. And in these dark times, if we turned to the internet simply looking for a job and trusted that a man offering to change our lives wasn't really out to take them, we We would be be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. Yes, Queen. <laughs>